Hello, everyone. I'm not Alison, uh, as you may notice, but I am uh, I'm Beatrice, and I will be doing this interview today with um, David while Alison is traveling. So welcome to the Existential Hope Group this Friday. Um, we're here today with David Lay, who's a scientist, uh, and he works with molecular machines. He designs and synthesizes molecular motors and machines and he works at the university of manchester and as i'm not an expert in the field of nanotechnology i don't know exactly how but i am aware that he's made a lot of contributions to the field of nanotechnology and i've heard that he's really someone who's supporting a lot of junior scientists in the field and um, really making like a pioneer for in the field of nanotech um and um i understand also that um he has won the Feynman Prize uh, in 2007, I believe, from uh, from the Foresight Institute. Uh, and really, you know, um, I'm excited to hear from David how the work that he's doing with nanotech can really help create futures of existential hope. And hopefully this interview will be able to, you know, inspire more people to get curious about what's happening in the field of nanotechnology and, the, you know, the potential and the possibilities of this science. Um, and I know that David is doing a lot of work also popularizing and explaining the work uh, of his field already. Uh, I, I saw the Nanobot video on YouTube. <laughs> so I'll paste that in the chat as well. Um, yeah, it's a very illustrative uh, uh, recommendation if you're curious about how nanobots are made. Um, yeah, so I think let's just get started. Thank you so much for coming, David. Um, Thank you, Beatrice, and welcome, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, okay, so David, what are you working on and what got you started in this field? Um, yeah, so I'm, a, um, uh, uh, I'm a, a chemist, a synthetic chemist at the University of Manchester in the, uh, in the UK. And we work in the ultimate in miniaturization of, of technology, uh, uh, molecular machines, trying to make artificial molecular machines. And the reason that we know that uh, an artificial molecular nanotechnology is possible is because there already is a working uh, molecular nanotechnology and it's called biology. And uh, that's the reason why scientists at the start of the 21st century, uh, or one of the reasons why we should perhaps be interested in trying to make molecular machines, it's because biology uses molecular machine for everything every conceivable biological process depends on molecular machinery the way that energy is harvested from the sun the way that it's stored in the cell uh, the way that uh, we can think uh, the way that we can move the way that you can process uh, 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 what i'm saying all depends on control of molecular motion and molecular machinery and in contrast humankind at the start of the 21st century despite our myriad of fantastic technologies we don't use molecular machines for anything at all. So every uh, catalyst, every reagent, every polymer, every pharmaceutical, every material just relies upon the static properties of those materials um, uh, uh, for their functions. Biology hasn't evolved over two and a half billion years to use molecular nanotechnology for everything for no good reason. And when we learn how to do the same, how to uh, control molecular level movement, 
Um, I'm convinced it will change all aspects of functional molecule and material design. It will make things today look like a Harry Potter film. And um, uh, I got into this area uh, by chance. We were working on something else uh, about 25 uh, years ago. We were trying to make molecules that would bind to carbon dioxide and capture uh, sequestered carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And one of the molecules that we were making was a, a ring-type molecule. And the idea would bind CO2 in the in the cavity. But when we tried to make it, we didn't get a single ring at all. What we actually got were two rings interlocked to, uh, together, just because of some of the uh, uh, the quirkiness of the uh, of the chemistry. Uh, but we recognised, in fact, uh, following on from some of the other earlier pioneers in the in the field, that having these uh, interlocked architectures. Uh, if we control the movement of the components in that, uh, maybe we could use those large amplitude motions at the nanoscale to make uh, molecular machines. Because the big problem in the area of trying to do this is that you can't shrink engineering concepts from the big world down to the very small because the way that matter behaves at different length scales is just so different. So my mobile phone is just going to sit on the desk in front of me because it's a big object so it's got it's, it's an object in the big world so it's got inertia and it's not going to move unless i give it some kinetic energy but if this was a molecular sized object it'd be constantly moving through random thermal motion through brownian motion so basically you have to design molecular machines in a completely different way um, to how you design machines in the big world and so what we really do is we learn how to do, we're learning how to do molecular engineering. Yeah, that's that's extremely fascinating to hear. I um, I mean, you you told us it could be like Harry Potter, uh, and <laughs> one thing we're really trying to do with this podcast is to like try to inspire young people to, to you know, uh, think about what's possible. So if you tell us, even is is there anything more specifically you can say, like what are the possibilities of nanotechnology? Well. Uh, um, let's just say, um, uh, I, I think that just that look at materials, I think that they will become, uh, active, we will have active matter going, uh, uh, going forward. So things like, um, clothes will not just be made out of fabrics, won't just be made out of, uh, fabrics that just have one shape and one size. It, uh, you'll be able to, make active uh, uh, clothes that shrink to fit every wearer or their surface properties can uh, change to um, uh, repel viruses or to be sticky when they need to be to change color. Um, just like you, um, uh, uh, um, you could clear up the icons on your desktop by clicking uh, a button and they'll all go from being randomly distributed to all being in order. Uh, one day you'll be able to go into your kid's bedroom and uh, see all the clothes all over the floor, click a, a, a switch or say, Siri, put those clothes away and lasers will come out of the, the roof and the uh, active materials will know where to jump back onto the hangers after they've first got rid of all the dirt and sweat on themselves by uh, uh, just being able to repel those sorts of uh, 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 fabrics and iron themselves automatically all that, that i mean that's just a trivial example using uh fabrics um but really i think we're at the start of in the in the field of um synthetic molecular machinery 
and molecular this type of molecular engineering. It's a little bit like um, being at the uh, uh, where Stone Age uh, man and woman had just invented the wheel, maybe to grind corn or something, and they couldn't foresee that putting two wheels on an axis uh, axle would enable you to um, control movement and still. And carry things more, transport things more easily, and still less would they be able to predict that you would one day be able to power things and be able to make motor cars or and foresee cities. So it's a little bit like um, we're we're right at the start of this process. But what we have that Stone Age man didn't have uh, is that Stone Age man didn't have um, uh, uh, a a technology that they that they could look towards whereas we do have we have a working molecular nanotechnology called biology and so we can see all the absolutely amazing things that biology is able to create all using just uh, uh 20 building blocks the amino acids whereas we've got the whole of the periodic table the whole of about 50 years of chemistry and physics that we've uh, uh developed and when we apply all those things in ways that nature doesn't need to do, it hasn't needed to do through evolution, uh, as I say, things are going to be unimaginably different. I, I truly believe that. It's going to take a little bit of time. It's not going to be immediate. And it's really hard to predict exactly what that future is going to be. But that's precisely why we want to invent it. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm curious as well, because... Nanotechnology doesn't seem like a field that's been around for for that long. But since you since you came into it, has there been any? Um, what's the development been? Has there been any shifts or or changes? Yeah, of course, nanotechnology means a lot of different things to different people. So, um, but just to talk about my particular area of molecular uh, synthetic molecular uh, machinery. It's actually something that Feynman touched upon in his famous lecture. There's plenty of room at the bottom. Uh, where he talked about uh, the possibility of uh, little uh, molecular uh, robots being able to assemble um, objects by moving atoms around. And that's, of course, a vision that uh, Eric Drexler um, seized upon for his molecular uh, assemblers. And um, But I think that it was difficult for people to move in that direction for a long time because... Uh, I think that the way to do it is through mimicking how biology um, does engineering, not to shrink down macroscopic engineering concepts, as some have interpreted um, uh, the, the Drexler type of um, uh, way of doing uh, mechano uh, synthesis. Say, uh, whereas they're already we we know how biology does things, and um, I think being able to mimic those processes using chemistry and physics is uh makes a, an awful lot more sense to me as a as a practicing sort of uh, synthetic scientist so the big developments that have come uh came really in the 90 at uh, the start of the 1990s when uh fraser stoddart and um uh, uh, and a, a, a chemist now at Northwestern University and Jean-Pierre Savage, uh, 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 now an emeritus professor at Strasbourg and Ben Feringa at the end of the 1990s in Groningen, um, uh, realized that you could, uh, maybe start to make molecular, uh, machinery. And they made mainly switches and they were awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for this pioneering work in 2016. Uh, ben also 
uh, serendipitously uh, formed the first molecular synthetic molecular motor. But the way that that works didn't really explain how other sort of motors and uh, machines could be made. It was sort of really a fancy switch. And so um, our contributions and those of others uh, coming after those pioneers has been to recognize how to take other facets of what biology does, so-called ratchet mechanisms, um, and to take the next sort of step to make more sophisticated uh, uh, machines. So I think that those early, that early work from that, that trio um, was extremely important for exciting chemists in particular to, to, to think that they could enter that area. And then other advances in theoretical physics um, have shown us uh, how we can actually make mechanisms that we can then apply to molecules, which people like myself do, to make um, yeah much more advanced systems than were possible before. Amazing. Is there is there anything that you think is currently going undervalued within the field? Uh, yeah, there's a, a lot that's... Uh, science is always like that, you know, that things take time to be recognized. But I, uh, I think also um, the most important way to get advanced in science is to take discoveries from one area and apply them in a, in a completely different um, area. And uh, those things take time to have that kind of crossover because it's not... Uh, it's not easy to recognize why something, some discovery, some profound uh, finding in one area is it, it can be applied in, in another because languages within science are just so different. It's not so easy to cross over uh, some of these concepts because science is so complex. But uh, again, one of the things I'm most proud of that our group have, have done is take concepts that came from theoretical physicists uh, about how to control uh, the movement of Brownian particles, so just pollen grains moving on uh, randomly around on uh, the surface of, of water. That random thermal movement, theoretical physicists realized you could there were ways to directionally control that uh, movement. And we realized that because molecules are also undergoing random thermal uh, movement, if we just took those ideas that the physicists had applied to Brownian particles and applied them to molecular machine design, it would be a way of making uh, uh, motors. And in fact, it turns out it's even more profound than uh, that. There's applications of those sorts of uh, mechanisms far beyond even molecular machinery. And uh, I think it's it's actually the key for how chemistry becomes biology, how the inanimate becomes animate. And so, you know, I think that's going to be a really exciting area for the next 10, 15 uh, years as uh, people show um, you know, how physics and chemistry actually become biology. I don't think biology is really, really complex because of the way that evolution works. And I think that it doesn't have to be. Yeah, and it's very, very interesting to hear. I, I was also hoping that you would be able to uh, provide some light on what it's basically, if we're trying to, you know, inspire young people to come into into this field, what what is it like <laughs> to be, what's the legal life of your, uh, as a specialist in your field? Uh, um, well, the field is extremely exciting. It's not a mature field at all. 
so there's plenty of discoveries uh, uh, to be made. It's it's like uh, uh, a little bit like um, uh, being like um, a, 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 an explorer in the 1500s, knowing that there's being like Columbus uh, uh, sitting there in 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 Spain, knowing that uh, he wants to go towards India. Uh, but it's a long way round to uh, to go east. So he goes out to the west. He's not afraid to lose sight of the shore. He knows that there's this vision of something great there, uh, but in fact he discovers something even better uh, along the, the way. And if you're willing to lose sight of the shore uh, and go off and explore things, then there's lots of exciting things to discover because this is not a mature field at all. Uh, there's lots of exciting things to do. So what's my personal day uh, like? Well, uh, like lots of people, um, I, I guess uh, uh, one of the nice things about my job is that every day is, is pretty different. So today I'm speaking to you from uh, British, lovely British Columbia. Um, I'm over here doing a, a lecture tour of three of the universities um, here today at the University of Victoria. Earlier in the week, I was at UBC and Simon Fraser. So I get to speak about the great work that, uh, that my, well, the work that my great students and creative students uh, are doing. Um, normally, I go into the uh, laboratory to see my group um, once a, uh, only once a week when I'm back home because I tend to uh, work from home because I'm the rest of the time because I'm uh, writing or unfortunately responding to emails, which take up a lot of the time. But when I'm in the lab um, with, with them, we start off with a, a, our group meeting. So that'll be an hour of people uh, giving the latest updates to everyone in our team of 25, 30 uh, people. And um, uh, uh, then I'll have uh, different meetings talking to other members of the group. Uh, we'll have project updates. Um, and I, I won't write anything when I'm actually at work. So, and I won't respond to emails. I'll just be meeting with people. Um, uh, yeah, but that's only a one day a week and the rest of the day, uh, days are, are sort of, uh, uh, yeah, thinking a lot as well. Actually, that's one of the luxuries of what I'm able to do, uh, because I need to prioritize the projects within our group. What's great and what's, um, uh, what's not ready to be discovered yet. And also trying to find what uh, things from other fields that we can bring to ours to make uh, our machines better, or to take our machines and uh, or, or, and concepts and how can they be applied in different areas? Yeah, I, you're making it sound very exciting and like a very exciting field to get into for sure. Um, so I wanted to to if we continue on this uh, slightly philosophical. Um, uh, lens um one the premise of this whole group is you know to to think about what's the direction we want to take this in so a little bit like the columbus metaphor that you were speaking on um you know and to think what what do we want for for our society and not just what what don't we want um so if we 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 speak of existential hope you know um and we think about that in terms of what the long-term future will look like and how we can make that um, you know, a good place. So well, what I wanted to ask you is, do you have a vision of existential hope rather than existential angst for, for the future? 
Um, yeah, I'm definitely uh, an optimist about the future. I just see how technology and society has advanced um, uh, for the better over my uh, lifetime. Uh, obviously, with uh, blips along the way, but I think that we are uh, at the quality of life, at least for most of us in the West, is way better uh, than it was um, uh, when I was a, a, a young boy. Um, but in in terms of uh, my vision for the future, in terms of science helping that and helping society, is ag- again to say that miniaturization of technology has always uh, advanced uh, it, it, technologies dramatically, and it has inherent uh, amazing advantages. So miniaturization means that you need less materials, both to build whatever it is that you're building, less waste is produced, less energy is required to run it. Uh, 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 It allows you, miniaturization allows you to have new functions and new applications that are simply not possible with large things. So these things address directly the sustainability and technological desires of society. So I think that they are um, uh, really key to uh, a future where uh, we um, a, a much more sustainable future uh, where we don't need uh, um, as much energy or is used more or wisely because of these uh, uh, technologies. So the miniaturization of technology is just an inherent good. It's an absolute good for society. Of course, things can always be used for bad. And if you see the latest James Bond film, he has a few problems with nanobots. Uh, but we shouldn't let that um, worry us. I'm sure that those are, at least in, from my lab, those are a long, long way off uh, yet. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, technology can always be used uh, uh, for bad or for good, but it's um, the increase in knowledge and the miniaturization of technology is certainly just an inherent good. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of the questions that we, we usually ask is that it always seems very hard for people to Envision the positive scenarios uh, and, you you know, uh, envisioning dystopias is easier because there are so many ways that things can go wrong, but uh, envisioning something uh, like utopia is, is much harder. And often when we do, you know, it ends up seeming eerie or uh, absurd. Um, and we have a harder time agreeing on what we want, maybe, than uh, what we don't want. Um, but is there anything you can, you think that we can do to change this? Um. I don't think that that's my uh, role um, to, uh, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I wouldn't claim to have a great vision of those sorts of things. I think that those are also, those are societal and political questions about how we want to live through the advantages that nanotechnology, molecular nanotechnology will give us. Uh, uh, but my, uh, what, what we, we are doing in, uh, what my vision is, is to try and get there as quickly as possible because I completely uh, see that it's going to give all these kinds of advantages for sustainability, um, uh, I say using less waste, uh, less requirements for energy, uh, technological advances and, and new functions. It's hard to see what those will be. Uh, and of course, those will re- definitely raise societal questions about what... Um, uh, uh, what people are going to to do if um, they have 
less work that they have to do, if we don't need to mine so much materials, uh, if there's much more auto automation in our society. Of course, that will mean that our society will change. But I, I leave it for others to think about those things. I don't have. I don't think that my views on that are uh, um, are, are uh, certainly not as uh, uh, not as well. Uh, I'm not as well informed on that as uh, I am on the potentials of nanotechnology and how to get there. Yeah, I um from from your vantage point, are there any? Any any undervalued risks, though, that you see that um, we we need to get around to solving? I definitely don't think that self-replicating grey goo or anything like that is any kind of uh, uh, a problem at all. Um, by the, 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 the there are dangers of um, uh, the dangers in sort of that side of, uh, come from synthetic biology, which is sort of uh, taking existing biological pieces and using techniques like CRISPR uh, to chop them up and, um, you know, to be able to manipulate organisms to uh, have bad things uh, associated uh, with them. So those sorts of technologies, they're going to removed from what I do. And uh, those are, are very powerful current technologies that uh, in the wrong hands, I'm sure, could be used to do bad um uh but I, i'm not sure that they're under bad uh, that those risks are known to uh uh, um, uh to people working in that area i think that they are known uh but we certainly shouldn't uh, um uh, make them make things like gray goo and things like that uh, as comparable risks the, the chances of anything like gray goo happening based on synthetic molecular machinery is um it is it, infinitely uh, uh, small and we're not in any position to do that and we won't be for hundreds and hundreds of years. I've heard of the concept of grey goo, but do you want to just explain it briefly? Well, grey goo is one of the... Um, uh, 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 Eric Drexler came up with this very interesting idea of molecular assemblers and those are things that uh, we in our group uh, kind of do work on uh, in a, or we call it molecular robotics, but these are molecules that can be programmed to build other molecules. They can't build anything sophisticated, uh, yet they can't build themselves, um, uh, nothing uh, like that. But we're going through the very early stages of being able to do that. And actually, there are examples of that, that's how biology works as well. There are things called superenzyme complexes that actually pass building blocks from active site to active site in certain enzyme and a super enzyme classes to build molecules so um uh, yeah uh, so so those sorts of things with synthetic molecular machinery have good analogies in biology but when eric came up with um this concept uh the idea of gray goo came up which could be you could have self-replicating nanobots which would just uh, uh be able to pluck um the building blocks they needed from any kind, almost any kind of matter, make more and more of themselves and replicate uh, in the way that bacteria do. But these things would be able to feed off essentially anything. And uh, they've popularized in things like uh, uh, the, uh, a Crichton novel and, um, uh, and other sorts of things. But those are not um, serious risks in the field of uh, 
nanotechnology, not for uh, not in the uh, the time, uh, not on an imaginable time frame for science. Whereas there are real existential risks in other kinds of synthetic biology if they were used for um, for ill. You know, for example, putting plague into um, into viruses or something, or well, not viruses, but uh, into bacteria uh, that, that could proliferate. No, I, I, you know, I'm, uh, but those risks are known, and those are the sorts of things that really need to be taken care of and legislated again. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, it, it's assuring to hear that the great boom scenario isn't very likely, long, even though there are other things to worry about. But if if we go back to the positive scenarios and you know envisioning those, um, are there any any specific breakthroughs that maybe if we think like on a five year time frame would tell you that we're on track to getting to to this more? Oh, area? I I think things just uh, uh, things just it's 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 hard to say uh, what will happen in five or ten years time that will. Uh, um, really change our lives but i mean the, who would have thought that with with facebook or uh tiktok or snapchat or whatever uh it, it is when they came out they won it, well only the, maybe zuckerberg himself thought it could be so uh, uh persuasive but that's uh it's, it's really hard to know how discoveries will be taken um uh, by science and what will actually be some killer app that changes um, uh, society. Really hard for me to know about that. And what I can say is that the first applications of um, synthetic molecular machines, they're likely to be things like smart surfaces uh, that can uh, uh, that can do stuff. So smart adhesives, uh, so say allowing you to recover um, silicon chips or uh, uh, gold, say, from silicon chips by just shining light on it so that the, the bits detach. And so allowing more renewable things, adding, adding real value to um, conventional materials. Um, lot of, the, real, the reason I'm saying surfaces is that surfaces only require very small amounts of molecular, uh, of, of substances to be made. Whereas if you wanted to um, make uh, factories, molecular factories that were making large amounts of of, of something. Uh, you would need an awful lot of um, stuff uh, to do that, and that would be expensive to build. But using our current technologies, uh, there are examples of very very simple um, molecular nanotechnologies already going into uh, products. So some phone screens are strengthened through the sort of mechanically interlocked structures that I was talking about that um, others and, and that ourselves discovered many uh, you know, quarter of a century ago. Um, so those are already being used to have um, uh, to improve the properties of conventional materials. But it's going to take a little bit of time before these ideas and concepts are of molecular machinery are sophisticated enough that they can do something uh, 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 that's uh, well, that, that, that's that's going to be, um, yeah, a killer app. I think. Yeah, is is this? Um, if we think of someone um, new trying to come into this field, is it something in particular that you would recommend they think about specializing in? Um, I would say this idea of applying the so the concepts that make 
molecular that turn molecular machines into motors is actually being able to use energy to then perform some task. Uh, uh, but this isn't limited to just molecular machinery. It could be uh, used for materials, so using energy like light energy or chemical energy or electrical energy to make materials that at the molecular level uh, do active active things. And it could be that they they're very they, they sense things, or it could be uh, in a very sensitive way and respond to that. And this is an area, uh, at least in terms of that, that no one has been, um, it, and people are just starting to do now, and it's much less developed than any of the other areas. Like, so taking the concepts that we and others are, have applied to molecular machinery and applying those sorts of concepts to materials. Some people are starting to do that now. And I think that that could have really exciting, um, uh, uh, that, that will definitely have really exciting consequences because it will stop, uh, it will stop materials from just being static fixed objects and they will be really responsive in ways, uh, as I say, that it's hard to even imagine now. My shirt being like a computer and being able to respond, uh, to its environment, to sense things. To if it if it senses that there's uh, 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 viruses, it, it puts out antiviral uh, bits on the surface, or it's uh, it closes the uh, distance between the fibers to stop it being penetrated. But when there's none around, it opens the fibers so it, I can breathe through it. All these kinds of uh, things that will just happen automatically or, or autonomously um, through active. Uh, materials. Um, I think that's uh, an area that will um, that that people can really get into now, and they may well be able to come up with a killer app for that in a short period of time because it's right at the start. Let's hope. Let's hope it happens soon. Uh, it sounds very like it could be very useful. Um, so again, for for someone new coming into this field, is there anything in particular that you would recommend reading, listening, watching, and it could be like fiction uh, or non-fiction? Well, this podcast series, obviously, is the uh, way to, uh, uh, is the way to go. I don't know, to be, uh, uh, to be honest, I'm not, um, uh, if it's um, people from, if they're scientists, uh, and they're, PhD, uh, they're thinking, what do I want to do to contribute to this a a area um, uh, through through research? Uh, then the sorts of fields to go into. Then it's good to be a specialist in something. You've got to have something to be able to offer to others. Jack of all trades who have no um, uh, no specific skill. I think that that's um, quite difficult. But at the same time, if you're a specialist. What's absolutely crucial in this kind of field is to have a broad awareness of what other fields can do, because that tells you where your expertise might be applied in a different kind of area. And um, so that you can uh, specialize in chemistry or you can specialize in physics or in molecular biology, but do something that gives you um, a, a skill of, of expertise. So the expertise of me and my group is in Synthetic chemistry, we can build molecules, but the, uh, and that gives us a big advantage over, say, 
physicists who may know more than me about how to design molecular machines, but they can't build them because they don't have that skill set. So my uh, my advantage over other synthetic chemists in my field is that I'm aware of what physicists know. I'm not an expert in it, but I'm able to take what some of what understand and appreciate some of the things that are going on in physics or biology and take some of those concepts and use them in the design of the things that I want to, to make. And I think that at least during my career, that served me uh, very well. So be expert in something, uh, but be very broad in your or outlook. And that goes back to what should people read. They should read lots of things. They should read nature and science and new scientists and uh, other uh, popular science and magazines to get a broad overview of what's happening because often these uh uh these uh, journals or these outlooks feature what are exciting developments in a particular field and it just gives you a um uh, again seeing breakthroughs in one area and transferring them to another that is a, a huge skill what this distinguishes great scientists from the ordinary it's three things it's the uh Ability to uh, uh, come up with a project, a, 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 a project that's so, or a problem, identify a problem that's uh, important enough to uh, that you could want to work on it, uh, but it's difficult enough that no one solved it already. And then the third thing you need to have is this uncanny ability to realise that the time is right uh, from developments in other fields, it, enough is known that now you should, this problem, it becomes tractable um, by applying these breakthroughs from different areas. That sounds like very, very wise uh, advice <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, trying to synthesize. Uh, I should have added a fourth thing. You have to be lucky as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's always a factor. <laughs> Um, well, okay. Thank you so much. I think now I'm going to uh, take us on a bit of a turn again, uh, and ask you for, you know, in every, in every, uh, one of these episodes, we also ask for an example of a potential EU catastrophe, uh, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, but it's, um, Owen Cotton Barrett and, uh, Toby Ord at the Future of Humanity Institute, who they define the term, um, EU catastrophe as, an event that causes there to be much more expected value after the event than before. So basically, it's the opposite of a catastrophe. Uh, and we like to think about that and play with that in terms of, um, you know, helping people envision these um, positive futures. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any any suggestions of? Um, um, of what? I, I, yeah, I mean, of course, this could be, be uh, many things. But let's say, of course, we've got this huge energy crisis in the world at the moment. And even without the war in Ukraine, uh, um, you know, the way that we've been using energy is, climate, uh, uh, is catastrophic for climate change and so on. So I think that something that would be uh, a, a catastrophe or whatever the uh, word was, a, a good one, would be biology. Um, uh, actually uses chemical fuels. Uh, it harvests the energy from the sun, but all the molecular machines in your body work through uh, chemical fuels. They use ATP, uh, converted to ADP, and use the energy from that to, to do things. So I think something that would be uh, a real breakthrough would be if you could find a way 
to do like biology uh, uses, use chemical fuels to, um, uh, well, chemical energy to find a way to use that in a very effective way to transmit it to sol- to um, uh, to be able to interface it with our current technologies so that we didn't have to rely on um, uh, uh, on uh, more conventional fuels. So a completely new way of, um, uh, of, of, of harvesting energy. Uh, and I've no idea how people will be able to do that. I think being able to interface that, those sort of fueling systems with conventional um, technologies would be difficult, but that would be something that would solve all our energy problems. Or, or I mean, there are, of course, there are other ways. Fusion, if suddenly there was a breakthrough in that that could uh, solve the energy, uh, world's energy problems, that would be great, allow us to concentrate on solving other massive problems such as... Um, clean water and many of the other sort of problems we face as a civilization. Yeah, I, I love I love it. It's very specific. It's going to be very interesting because, you know, what we'll do is we'll ask an artist to sort of interpret this uh, and try to create an art piece uh, out of this prompt. Um, and yeah, we're, we're also aware that the word is a, is, is a pretty bad one because you catastrophe and everyone just thinks about catastrophe. So <laughs> We also um, try to find, you know, a better name for it. We actually just um, had uh, a bounty where we um, were asking for suggestions of better names. And I think the winner is efflorescence. Um, but if, if you have any better suggestions, we're also very open to hearing them. Um, uh, um, yeah. No, that sounds great to me. Yeah. Yeah. Efflorescence. Is, it's a beautiful one. Um. Okay, well, I think uh, I'll ask you, I think, two more questions, and then we can go to the audience questions as well. Um, you've already given a lot of a, a lot of really good advice, but do you have one piece of advice that's like, this is the best advice I ever got? Best advice I ever got was the cheapest way to pay is with money. You know, the most valuable uh, thing for many of us is our time uh, and uh, and. Uh, when I have a, a big problem and I've made a mess of things, uh, the easiest way, I, the, the cheapest way out of it is often just to pay to get it done and sorted. So, and uh, governments could uh, learn from this uh, uh, as well. Science is, uh, it is the key driver of um, success in all economies. And uh, all the time they try and skimp on uh, uh, on funding it. They just need to invest properly and uh, they'll find that uh, uh, they get their money back more, uh, uh, far more than they uh, invested. But um, uh, again, it's up to people like me to convince the both the politicians and the general public who vote for politicians uh, that it's a good use of their tax dollars. Yeah, I think that sounds like good and very concrete advice. This this can be applied on a on a small and a grand scale. Um, thank you. I, I'll I'll go into the audience questions now. So um, we have one question from Machas that says most of biology seems to work with a very small number of elements. What potential does the rest of the periodic table have for building molecular machines? Yeah, so that's a great point and one of the most important. So the the, the reason that uh, biological machines are so huge 
uh, uh, enzymes and motor proteins are so big in terms of number of atoms and everything is that biology only has 20 building blocks, I mean, the, the amino acids, uh, which it uses to build uh, everything, whereas we've got the whole of the periodic uh, uh, table and we can make things that are, are much uh, simpler and much more effective in our, in our own uh, way by using uh, uh, different elements. And so that's just chemistry. Um, uh, the, the, the whole field of chemistry is about uh, uh, using different elements and different chemistries and different conditions to uh, achieve different outcomes. And uh, it allows things to, uh, the, the different elements allow you to, to do things that uh, just can't be done with carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So that you have redox properties of metals and, and so on that are, are used in tiny amounts in biology because it, it just needs to do it. But, but we can uh, uh, use those in a much more effective way than biology can because biology just chooses things through evolutionary pathways, whatever works. But we can, uh, by learning how biology does things, it gives us clues uh, of how to do things. We can find much simpler ways of our own of doing them. Uh, and other audience question is, how would you deliver energy to the smart fabrics that you mentioned earlier? Um, uh, there could be light or uh, or electricity or uh, uh, maybe chemical energy uh, in some kind of, of way, even mechano energy, even the movements that you uh, uh, make, those, uh, those could be harvested and converted into um, electricity, of course, through piezoelectric type of effects. So any of those sorts of things could be used in principle, I guess. Interesting. Um, and another audience question is, do you see any value in design rules to let engineers make design shapes out of protein blocks? Um, um, yeah, I don't see... Uh, it's always... Um, I think that there's always interesting... Uh, it's hard to know what what, uh, what uh, new ideas are going to, uh, new concepts are going to be to be useful for. So, uh, the, but just the ability to do that sounds to me like it would be extremely interesting because it's like controlling the quaternary structure of proteins. For proteins, you've got primary structure, which is the sequence, secondary structure, tertiary structure, which is sort of the folds and the overall shape, and then quaternary structure is how they stick together to form a larger object. So it sounds to me like the question is, is finding a new way to control quaternary structure of proteins, and uh, I'm sure that that can be useful for function. It certainly is in biology. I trust you on this. Um, yeah. Another question is, can nanobots be used for atomic precision in construction of novel materials. Yeah, uh, ultimately, I think yes. And that's um, some of the work that we've uh, done is making these first programmable um, uh, synthetic molecular robots that, that are DNA nanotechnology, so that, that can just do simple chemical uh, reactions to build selectively one of four different uh, 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 molecules. So as that becomes more and more sophisticated, uh, that we'll be able to uh, build more and more complicated structures. It's like having a Lego set, and at the moment we're a Meccano set, and we can just do use it to um, uh, uh, move the arm between two sites and so pick up 
one thing and put it down. You need to be able to make more complicated systems uh, and find that find this way of molecularly engineering those components together so they do more than the sum of their parts. And that's how complex machinery is made. But as I say, you can't just shrink down the machinery concepts that you used for engineering the machines in the big world. Um, we've got to invent our own ways of doing that. Um, and the great thing is that we, we can learn by seeing how biology does similar things and also just come up with, use our own imaginations and creativity to, to, to find those rules ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's very interesting to hear. Uh, and you know, uh, you're very good at making these metaphors and, and I feel like I, this has been a really good intro to molecular machines. I think, um, the last questions I'll, I'll ask you is just if, if there's, um, anything you think I've missed asking or anything else you want to touch on? You've covered everything so well, Beatrice. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to the, the, uh, the group. And, uh, yeah. And thanks for asking such nice questions, both them and you. Thank you. If you're fine with it, I think we just received one uh, last question, which says, might nanobots lead the way from the bottom in exploring emergent phenomena in foundational physics? Yeah, so um, just as we learn from physics, I, I, uh, and we use the uh, physics to design our molecules. Absolutely, uh, what we do can it, um, can um, feed back into uh, making better theory because physics normally um, treats things as points or spheres, particles as points and those spheres or something. And so it's very um, uh, 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 very simplistic in those sorts of um, the way that it interprets uh, uh, or it comes up with its models. Whereas we work with real molecules which have real uh, real shapes and limits on uh, bond angles for, and bond lengths and things like this. And that uh, uh, gives us, in turn, gives us insights by knowing how these things that we design behave according to the physics theory. They allow us to say to physicists, well, actually, you know, that particle that you're, you've got on an unsymmetrical surface, you can actually achieve the same thing by having an unsymmetrical particle on a symmetrical surface. And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily think about in, in physics. Um, so but using those designs to feed into chemistry uh, allows us to make, to make effectively, we make the molecular structures of Gedanken experiments. And then having made those Gedanken, uh, uh, those uh, real models of, um, of uh, the work of the Gedanken experiments, those can be fed back into the theory and uh, lead to insights into the theory uh, uh, how it applies in different ways. So it's definitely a two-way street, I think. I hope so, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a good good last question. I'm happy we got it in, and it, it really shows this importance, of, uh, which is a big part of what we're trying to do at Foresight, this cross-silo collaboration between the fields of you know technology and science. Um, well, again, thank you so much, David. It's been really, really interesting. And thank you, everyone else, for joining. Thanks for having me.